Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Doody. And we know the mantra of the campaign that has just gone by. In case you've forgotten it, you probably have. It is deliver Brexit, unite the country and defeat Jeremy Corbyn. And that is what we're going to do. Number 10 Downing Street will have a new occupant from Wednesday night. It is, as anticipated, Boris Johnson. And our London editor, Dennis Staunton, has been combing through Johnson's writings over many years to see what they tell us about his worldview. Later, I'll be talking to Daniel McLaughlin about the stunning election victory in Ukraine of the party of President Volodymyr Zelensky, which is on course to achieve an overall majority in the parliament in Kiev. But Dennis Staunton is on the line from London to tell us about his weekend reading the works of Boris Johnson. First, Dennis, I suppose, just to recap on the, the, the result today of the Conservative Party leadership election, Johnson had a commanding win over Jeremy Hunt. Yes, Boris Johnson won uh, with two thirds of the vote, so that's uh, you know that, that's a bit bigger than he kind of needed to uh, to make it decisive. What his people have been saying was they were hoping it would be over sixty percent, and uh, and so I think he can uh, he can feel pleased with that. He made a, a short speech, not very much. Apparently, his team weren't even keen that he should make uh, much of a speech at all today, and so he made a short speech where he spoke about bringing the country together, bringing the party together, and he. He made a few jokes and the, most of the action is going to be tomorrow on Wednesday when Theresa May does her final Prime Minister's questions, goes to the palace and then Boris Johnson will take over. Now, Dennis, we know that, that Johnson likes to hear himself compared to Winston Churchill, as indeed any Conservative leader would. But you make the point in a piece you've written, which will be uh, on the Irish Times uh, site later today, Tuesday, that in one respect, at least, the comparison with Churchill is absolutely valid in that Johnson would be the first prime minister since Churchill to have made his living by writing. That's right. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, has been a journalist for most of his life. So he's been writing journalism for uh, the past three decades. And he was the editor of The Spectator. He was a reporter for the Daily Telegraph in Brussels, which is where he really gained his fame and notoriety. And uh, and kind of started his uh, his career as a as a public eurosceptic, and uh, but for most of the time he's been writing opinion columns. He, he's also written a number of books. He wrote a biography of Churchill. He's written popular histories of the Roman Empire and of London. He wrote a memoir of his first general election campaign. And he also wrote a comic novel called 72 Virgins, which is set in the House of Commons. I think you concluded from reading the opinion columns in particular. And and actually, I quote your own conclusion back to you here, Dennis, which is that what, what emerges is a social liberal with deeply conservative manners and prejudices, a pro-American foreign policy hawk who is squeamish about the reality of war and a tax-cutting Tory who likes to splash the cash around on popular initiatives. Just to break that down, Dennis, into its separate parts, the social liberal with deeply conservative manners and prejudices. Tell us more about that. Well, Boris Johnson, generally speaking, has been in favour of most of the social liberalisation uh, in Britain. So, for example, he was a pretty early supporter of same-sex marriage and of, uh, and before that of, uh, of civil partnerships for, uh, for gay and lesbian couples. And yet uh, some of the language that he uses and has used uh, about gay people, he referred to gay people as bum boys. He uh, uh, you know, he's so. In other words, he he's somebody who uh, who's basic policy instincts are pretty liberal, but the language that he uses is often very offensive. 
And so one example of this would be his one of his most notorious columns, which is a fairly recent one, where he compared Muslim women wearing the burqa to letterboxes. And this column caused enormous offence, and he was even reported for Islamophobia, and there was an investigation into him in the Conservative Party. But in fact, the purpose of the column and the argument in the column was it was an argument against Denmark's banning of the burqa. And so it was a liberal argument saying, you or I, in his case, may think this is ridiculous or whatever else he thought. But nonetheless, he felt that uh, these women had the right to dress as they pleased. So there is this um, kind of, you know, uh, there's, there's a sort of a paradox almost in that the language that he uses reflects a set of attitudes and possibly prejudices. And these are the attitudes and the prejudices that uh, that resonate with uh, a lot of conservative voters. As a, a one uh, conservative uh, peer the other day put it to me, saying that Boris Johnson really appeals to the kind of person who thinks that the world started to go to hell in, the hand, in a handcart as soon as people started calling personnel human resources. And so he's uh, he's got that kind of attitude. And yet, the policies are actually pretty liberal. And sometimes, of course, Dennis, the recourse to offensive language to which you alluded there, the, the initial argument gets lost and it's only the offensive language that gets uh, discussed and reported upon and so on. But do you think that's deliberate because he's that kind of he's then making a kind of an appeal or a secondary appeal to maybe the worst instincts of some of his supporters? I think it is in a way, but it's also it's part of the way he speaks uh, in any case. So you often find in a you know, one of the reasons he's actually quite an interesting speaker to listen to is because within the same sentence, he will make some very obscure reference, possibly a classical reference, probably even, uh, you know, he might be even uh, quoting something in Latin or, or in Greek. But then uh, in the same sentence, you'll have some. Uh, really, very, very commonplace kind of slang phrase. So, so that he he quite he likes to keep uh, his listeners and his readers on their toes in a way, and he livens things up by allowing the language in a way to contrast with what he's saying. So he's saying something, but he's saying it in, in an utterly unexpected sort of way. And at the same time, of course, what he's saying to people is, look, I'm sh- I share your basic instincts, your basic attitude to the world and the fact that the world is going to the dogs. But at the same time, uh, you know, we've got to actually do the sensible thing and support this progressive change. Now, to take the second part of your conclusion, a pro-American foreign policy hawk who is squeamish about the reality of war. I'm struck by how much part of that description at least might also apply to the current US president. But tell us how it applies to Boris Johnson. Well, Boris Johnson is, uh, you know, his basic foreign policy outlook is that he's very pro-American. He believes very much in the uh, in the Atlantic alliance and the special relationship between Britain and America. And that's obviously even more the case now after Brexit. And so, for example, he did support the, uh, the war in Iraq in the year 2003. But he then went to Iraq and he did a series of reports from there, which didn't say that the war was a mistake, but it was. They were highly critical of the uh, of the aftermath of the war and of the reconstruction of Iraq, and so he uh, he was you know he, he was very um, willing to describe the consequences of war. And if you go back a few years earlier, when uh, the uh, the Allied war on Yugoslavia and on Slobodan Milosevic was uh, was uh, it, it amounted to a kind of a seventy day bombing campaign. He went over there to report on that. And he wrote uh, a a series of extremely angry pieces denouncing that 
bombardment and basically saying the, you know, to, uh, to Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, you should look at what you're doing because actually what you're doing is the opposite of what you claim to be doing, which is to somehow defend the people of Kosovo. All you're leaving is a, a trail of death and destruction in your wake. And then there's the tax-cutting Tory who likes to splash the cash around on popular initiatives. Again, we're seeing contradictory impulses here, aren't we? Yes. So what you're seeing is that uh, you know he's, uh, Boris Johnson, when he was mayor of London, for example, was very much in favour of these big infrastructure projects, uh, some of which he just spent money on and they never got anywhere. For example, he wanted to build uh, a, a new airport for London on an island. Uh, which was going to be called, or was, which was colloquially known as Boris Island. That never happened. He was going to build a garden garden bridge across the Thames, spent quite a lot of money. That never happened either. But also in his columns, he uh, advocates quite a lot of spending on things like helping disadvantaged young people to get out of where they are and to, uh, and to give them a chance. And yet at the same time, uh, he constantly goes back to basic kind of Tory instincts of, uh, of cutting taxes and of giving people more control over their own money. And, uh, and yet, uh, you know, when he talks about what the Tory party is, he wrote a column in 2001 during the, uh, uh, one of the Conservative leadership campaigns. And he said, you know, all this talk about a battle for the Tory soul is nonsense. There's no such thing. The Conservative Party is essentially about uh, winning elections. It's about holding together and winning elections. And funnily enough, today, when he uh, made his acceptance speech, he spoke about uh, the fact that the Conservatives have the best instincts into human nature. And he said the best insights into how to manage the jostling sets of instincts in the human heart. And he spoke about really how uh, whenever people wanted to uh, to reconcile, say, on the one hand, wanting to do well for themselves and on the other, wanting to share, that they turned towards the Conservative Party, as he put it. So that, in other words, he, um, you know, he welcomes this kind of conflict and he believes that the function of the Conservative Party and of politicians like him is somehow to reconcile the two. And that, I think, is uh, is something that you see reflected throughout much of what he's written over the last 30 years. Now, I refer there to Donald Trump a moment ago, and many observers have drawn attention to some of the shared characteristics between Trump and Johnson, though I suspect Boris Johnson has written more books than Donald Trump has read. But you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned another populist politician, uh, Dennis, that Johnson has expressed particular admiration for, and that's Silvio Berlusconi. Yes, he went uh, and he did an interview with Berlusconi in uh, 2003. Uh, He went to visit him in Sardinia and he absolutely uh, just was entranced by him. And he kind of lists all the terrible things that that Berlusconi uh, is accused of doing. But he basically says that, you know, after, uh, you know, decades of incredibly gloomy, boring party bureaucrats in Italy, that basically this guy had calmly cheered everybody up. And uh, it's quite clear that that's exactly how he views himself. This is what he thinks that part of his mission is, that after the uh, the gloom of Theresa May for three years, that here comes this character who, uh, who he thinks can actually cheer up the nation, tell the, the country that actually Brexit can work. It's not just a problem that has to be solved. It's an opportunity. And so, uh, again, today, when he, uh, you know, when he made his acceptance speech, what was striking was that 
he didn't try to adopt a very serious statesmanlike uh, attitude, as he did, for example, when he was appointed uh, foreign secretary. Instead, he was very much Boris himself. So he was making these jokes and he was uh, he was playing to the crowd and he was drawing energy from the crowd. And so I think that might be an indication that that actually is the way he's going to govern. You're going to get the real Boris Johnson, or at least the Boris Johnson that the public, uh, insofar as the public likes him, uh, that's the Boris Johnson that you're going to get. Now, you say also he cherishes inconsistency as a strength. He is similar to Trump in that respect, I guess. Yes, and I think it is that uh, idea that actually what uh, a politician does is that you actually have to reconcile all these competing instincts and competing ideas. And so, uh, you know, for example, on Brexit, once again, he's kind of saying, although I know that half the country didn't like it and half the country think it's the best thing, thinks it's the best thing that can ever happen, uh, I think that I can somehow reconcile these and bring us all together. So I think that, you know, and, and also, I mean, he, for example, in a number of the pieces that he wrote over the years, he writes a lot about Tony Blair. It's quite clear that the that the two prime ministers in his lifetime that uh, he thought were the most impressive were, uh, were Margaret Thatcher, who he obviously admired, and Tony Blair, who he disliked in many ways, and yet he couldn't help admiring him. And he spoke about uh, Tony Blair's protean quality and the way in which he was able to adopt but uh, different uh, characteristics and almost a different appearance at different times. And I think that's something also that Boris Johnson would aspire to. And we've talked here about some of the contradictions within him, you know, and the tax cutter who likes to spend and so on. Did you find anything as you read through his works that pointed to his having a really deep conviction about anything? I think he does clearly have uh, a conviction in terms of the idea of freedom and of personal freedom. He quite clearly does believe that the state uh, ought to stop interfering and stop getting in the way of uh, people enjoying themselves. And he's got a very good piece, a very good column, which I have to say I enjoyed myself, about uh, about, uh, about work and, and really basically criticising Gordon Brown for being obsessed with work and thinking that everybody ought to work all the time, whereas actually work was really not the most important thing in most people's lives. And that actually by focusing so much on uh, a rather joyless, uh, utilitarian approach to life that people, you know, the government's risked, uh, you know, uh, sucking all the joy out of it. So I think it is a kind of, uh, one of his biographers, um, uh, Andrew Jimson, describes it as a kind of, a kind of Merry England uh, approach to governing. And I think that is something that is pretty consistent throughout what, uh, what he's been writing. Now, to return to the Winston Churchill comparison, Churchill, of course, was no ordinary writer, and, and indeed he was awarded the Nobel Prize in literature in, in 1953. Well, what about Johnson? Is he a good writer? He is not a great writer on the uh, you know on the long stretch in the sense so his books aren't really all that great. But actually, you do tend to read his columns. Once you start them, you will tend to read them to the end because he's a lively journalistic writer and he understands that basic rule of writing opinion columns, which is simplify and exaggerate. And he does that. And then he also just adds a little bit of linguistic pep. And uh, before you know where you are, you are actually enjoying yourself. And it doesn't really matter whether you agree with him or not. You do tend to, to read him. So he's good on the sprint not so great on the marathon. <laughs> you allude to the fact that um, even in his moment of triumph, you know, he, he I mean, he's obviously a very bright man and he, he will likely have a keen awareness of his own vulnerability and the fact that nothing in politics is permanent. Yes, and, uh, and he, he wrote... Uh, a piece when Jonathan Aiken, you may remember this uh, conservative politician, he was a cabinet minister. The sword of truth, was it? Or was that the phrase? The, yeah. Indeed, mm. the sturdy sword of truth. And unfortunately, a sturdy sword of truth uh, turned out to be made of lies. And he... Um, 
had uh, he sued the uh, the Guardian for libel, and as it turns out, the Guardian was telling the truth, and he was not. And so uh, Boris Johnson uh, wrote this piece about his uh, resignation, and he said that politics was a constant repetition of, uh, of of the myth about making kings, and then after a while killing them off to achieve a kind of a rebirth. And he was saying, you know, some of the kings are innocent, some like Jonathan Aiken are not, but it doesn't really matter that they all have to die in the end. So, so what, in summary, Dennis, based on your your life reading over the weekend, what do you think we should? expect from a Boris Boris Johnson's premiership? It sounds like he's determined to cheer everybody up anyway. I think he probably does, although I, I think part of the problem with uh, journalists as prime ministers is that, uh, you know, as a, as a columnist, you can change your opinion every week if you feel so inclined. And uh, most, since, you know, most people don't remember anything you've written anyway. Uh, whereas, of course, in, as a prime minister, the decisions that you make do have consequences. So I think maybe his journalism, it's a guide to, uh, I think, probably his outlook and to the kind of uh, instincts that he has and the things that he cares about. But I'm not sure it'll tell us how good he's going to be at actually governing uh, a, a large modern state. OK, well, the Boris Johnson era, that's the right word, begins on Wednesday. And no doubt, Dennis, you'll be back to give us your assessment of how it's going, but we'll leave it there for now. Thanks again to Dennis Staunton in London. We're going to talk now about Ukraine, where President Volodymyr Zelensky's Servant of the People Party is set to win an unprecedented overall majority in that country's parliament after Sunday's elections. Our correspondent Daniel Midlockton spent several days in Ukraine in the run-up to the election and joins me now from Budapest. Dan, we knew that Zelensky's party was going to have a good election, but it has done even better than expected, hasn't it? It has. It was a really extraordinary result for Zelensky's party, uh, which is called Servant of the People. Uh, It was indeed expected to do very well. um, And according to the party list system, uh, which uh, operates in Ukraine, it it, it did about as well as was expected. It took uh, something like 43-44% of votes according to the party list. But it did way better than expected in the single uh, the single constituencies dotted around the country, where some of the older figures, some of the long-established politicians, business figures, influential local power bro- power brokers, were expected to basically resist this tide of change and hold on to their positions. Um, in those seats, servants of the people absolutely, well, almost entirely swept the board. Um, and as we look at the current figures with more than 90, about 96% of votes counted so far. Servants of the People is expected to take 253 of the 424 seats available in in Parliament. So an absolutely dominant display for Zelensky and his party. And this is not just a new party, um, Dan, but um, the candidates themselves, am I I correct that none of these uh, candidates have sat in Parliament before? That's right. That was a a key rule that um, Zelensky put down when he was forming this party, this party that is still really just coming into being now. Uh, He said that he didn't want to put any standing deputies, current deputies on the party's list. So that's right. All the people coming from Servant of the People, that looks like being around 250, 253 new deputies will be completely new to politics. They are from a very uh, wide range of backgrounds. They include uh, other performers like Zelensky himself, who uh, gained his fame as a, as a comedian in Ukraine. There are sports people coming in. There are uh, businessmen and businesswomen. There are uh, activists, lawyers, 
um, people from a, a, a very, very uh, diverse range of backgrounds, as I say, um, all of whom are basically saying that we want to be part of what Zelensky has promised. And that is a completely new kind of politics, uh, an end to corruption, um, a relaunch of reforms of the criminal justice system, and uh, essentially going back to what the protesters in the Maidan revolution five years ago demanded which was the um, full entrenchment of the rule of law across Ukraine, which can hopefully, they say, lead to increased foreign investment, a more stable economy, and uh, the much fairer society that people back in the people in the revolution five years ago were demanding. Now, when Zelensky was elected and, uh, as president in April, it's worth remembering he's just empowered himself for a few months, and you alluded there, Dan, to the fact that he was best known as a, a comedian, um, primarily known for acting playing the role of president in a TV series. How has he been doing so far in his new role as the real president? Well, he's done okay so far, I think. Some people, his critics were predicting disaster because he, is, he has absolutely no political experience. Um, but he's been abroad to, uh, to Germany and to France. He's met uh, Angela Merkel and uh, Emmanuel Macron. Uh, he's held telephone talks with Vladimir Putin in Russia. And so far, those discussions seem to have gone, gone okay. There have been no terrible blunders. He's been somewhat, well, he's been very much limited in what he can do so far. This was why the parliamentary elections were so important to him. Um, the things he's been able to do, he has tried to do move pretty quickly on, such as replacing regional governors, replacing senior figures in the security services and the, uh, at the prosecutor general's office, um, bringing new people into the foreign ministry. But for the major structural changes that he's promised in terms of rule of law, in terms of fighting against corruption, in terms of launching a major privatization program, in terms of modernizing the economy to attract investment, these were things he could only do uh, once a new parliament was in place, because he's been working for the last couple of months with uh, the previous parliament, which was predominantly loyal to former president Petro Poroshenko. So now, uh, when that parliament finally sits, Zelensky says this will really be time to go full speed ahead and to start instituting the changes that he promised in his election campaign and that candidates for servant of the people have had such spectacular success with uh, in Sunday's election. You mentioned Poroshenko there, Dan, and of course when Poroshenko was president, he claimed that Zelensky would lack the way of it all and the courage to stand up to Vladimir Putin in Russia. What are the early signs about that, about the relationship or about how Zelensky will deal with Putin? I think that's been one of the most interesting and probably the most successful aspects of, of the Zelensky presidency so far. Um, Poroshenko did during his campaign say that this it was it was it would be disastrous for Ukraine to choose a completely inexperienced president during a time of war and essentially put him face to face with Vladimir Putin, who's been in power for 20 years and is hugely experienced. But while they ha there haven't been any face-to-face -face talks yet, they have spoken by telephone. And Zelensky has made a couple of very strong statements uh, over social media. Uh, one of the initial, th one of the things that Putin did in the days following Zelensky's presidential election victory was to offer um, a fast-track Russian citizenship program to Ukrainians living in parts of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk regions in eastern Ukraine that are currently controlled by the separatists, which Moscow, who Moscow supports. Um, in response to this, Zelensky said that he wants to make Ukraine basically a, a, a beacon of freedom and democracy, as he, as he put it, for the entire region. 
He said Ukraine will offer citizenship and protection to anyone who's fighting against uh, oppression and rights abuses in their own country, and particularly Russian citizens who suffer most of all, he said. Um, in the last few days, uh, Putin extended that offer of, of uh, fast-track Russian citizenship to all Ukrainians living in those two regions, Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, and uh, Zelensky immediately responded by saying that he would uh, broaden out his own offer of citizenship to people who um, who are suffering from, from um, oppression and rights abuses in their countries. So he has shown that he's willing, even if not face-to-face -face yet, he is willing to take on Putin rhetorically. Um, and he insists that this is one of the crucial priorities of his presidency, initially to achieve a, a prisoner swap, a release uh, and a return home of Ukrainian prisoners held in Russia, probably in exchange for Russian prisoners held in Ukraine. He says he wants to get that done in the next few weeks, at least as a start and a confidence building measure towards restarting peace talks, um, bringing together the uh, bringing together peace talks again in the Normandy format, as it's called. That's uh, the Ukrainian leader, Putin. Um, and, the, and the leaders of Germany and France. He wants to restart those talks as soon as possible. And he says that this is, this is another absolutely crucial part of rebuilding Ukraine, uh, making it successful in the future. There's not just the anti-corruption and the economic development side, but there has to be peace in the East. And he wants to start along that road as quickly as possible. Now, Zelensky is not the only celebrity or, or former entertainer, I suppose, in his case, who has been prominent in this election campaign. And then you wrote um, a good feature in advance about a rock star called um, Sivatislav Vakarchuk. You can correct me on my, my pronunciation, but how did his party, uh, Holos or Voice, how did that perform? His party did pretty well. It was polling all the way through in the in the campaign between five and ten percent. Uh, in the last few days, just ahead of the vote, um, there were a couple of surveys which suggested that it might struggle to cross that 5% threshold to enter parliament. But in the end, it did. Um, it got more than 6% of votes. And it also took a few of those uh, single mandate constituencies that I mentioned as well. So it, at the moment, it looks set to take 20 seats in parliament, which for a brand new party... Um, if you don't compare it to Servant of the People, at least, is pretty good. It means that it's going to be almost on a par with the parties of Poroshenko and former Prime Minister Yulia Tymoshenko. So, uh, yeah, for a party that is still essentially establishing itself, it was a pretty good performance. Um, now, Vakarchuk is an interesting character. He is uh, the lead singer of, of probably Ukraine's biggest rock band, which is called Okean Elzi. Um, and whereas... Zelensky really came out of nowhere politically to uh, take the presidency, just really starting this year when he announced his run for presidency on, on uh, New Year's Eve. Um, Vakarchuk has been in and around politics for a long time. He was a prominent supporter of the Orange Revolution back in 2004-05 and also the Maidan Revolution in 2013-14. Um, so he has been active. He has a strong political voice. Um, he's very liberal. He's very progressive. He's also very bright and very academic. Zelensky comes from a background in entertainment and and business. He has a media, a big media production company, as well as being a, a comedian himself. Vakarchuk has a PhD in theoretical physics. He studied at Yale and at Stanford in the States in recent years. So it looks like he's been preparing for politics for a long time. He actually sat briefly as a 
as a deputy after the Orange Revolution, when the infighting between the leaders of that movement, that reform movement, Yulia Tymoshenko and Viktor Yushchenko, that uh, basically made it impossible to push through the reforms that Bakotchuk had hoped for. So he left politics at that point, went back to being a rock musician and an activist, but now he's decided it is the time to go into politics. There was talk of a potential uh, coalition government between Zelensky's Servant of the People and Vakochuk's Holos Party. But now it looks like that's not going to be necessary on Zelensky's part. Servant of the People has a majority of its own. It's the very first time in Ukraine's post-Soviet history that any one party has that parliamentary majority. So the chances of a coalition are dimming somewhat, but the two parties do agree on lots of priorities. The anti-corruption reforms, strengthening anti-corruption agencies and pushing through or relaunching reform of the criminal justice system. So certainly Zelensky and Servant of the People would look to Vakarchuk and to Holos as being natural partners in parliament. And we will see. Vakarchuk says he's definitely in politics for the long term this time. And with this reform agenda, Holos is certainly going to look to be growing and taking more support from the old guard leaders and old guard parties of Timoshenko and Poroshenko in the years ahead. And what about the old guard now, Dan, as they have now become, what's the future for them? Are they going to stick around and and try to forge some kind of a comeback? I think they probably will stick around. I mean, both those those main characters that we've spoken about there, former President Poroshenko, former Prime Minister Timoshenko, they still insist that they have a lot to give to Ukraine. They have no intention of leaving parliament or politics at the moment. Um, the question is really how they how they frame their politics and their stance going forward. Lots of the pro-Western support that they have had previously in Ukraine has gone to servants of the people. Lots of the strongly liberal, pro-reformist support could start to move towards Holos. So they will have to really uh, try and redefine themselves again. I mean, they've been in in Ukrainian politics through all its ups and downs for getting on for 20 years now. So they will need to, again, kind of um, refashion, rebrand themselves and relaunch their their parties in a way to try and find a a new niche in politics. The party that actually came second, which we should definitely mention, in the elections was the um, opposition platform party, which is the the party which most strongly represents pro-Russian feeling in the country. It did uh, the party did strongly in Donetsk and Lugansk regions, the two regions where the conflict is taking place, and which both both of which border Russia, and where economic links, family links have always been very strong with Russia just over the border. So that that would be the strongest, most obvious uh, opposition party to offer a very different strategic vision for Ukraine. So opposition platform says that if Ukraine really wants to progress, if it really wants to strengthen its economy, if it really wants to have peace, if it really wants to boost its economic perspective and uh, prospects for young people in Ukraine, it needs to uh, re-establish good relations with Russia. So that's the, that's the, the, the party that's, that uh, contrasts most strongly with the other, the other four parties which will enter parliament. But the, one of the most interesting things too, which is worth mentioning about Servant of the People, is that it draws its support from the entire country. Even in the east, uh, in Donetsk and Lugansk regions where opposition platform did best, 
uh, Servant of the People came a very close second. In the far west of the country, which is traditionally more nationalist, uh, fully Ukrainian speaking, Servant of the People also won in almost all areas. There was one area where Holos did better. But um, the geographical differences, political differences that we've seen in Ukraine since independence in 91 have really been overcome by Servant of the People. It's a national movement, a national party. And in that sense, it will also be more difficult for Putin and Russia to deal with. Russia has always played with these um, geographical splits in Ukraine, linguistic splits, and Zelensky is doing his very best, uh, including by speaking Russian and Ukrainian, using both languages interchangeably almost, to show that he considers everyone, Russian speakers, Ukrainian speakers, to be Ukrainians. He is doing his very best to overcome that and make sure that uh, those traditional fractures come back together and they heal to some extent, and Russia can't use them to undermine Ukraine anymore. Okay, Dan, well, a really interesting result there, and uh, no doubt you'll be continuing to report on it and analyse it for the Irish Times. Thanks for that today. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.